0: Welcome to Bread. Romans has been described as the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. It's why we've entitled the series, The Complete Works of God. In Romans, we have the Christian manifesto in all its breadth. Ultimately, it's a manifesto to the freedom Jesus has come to bring. So that's what we'll be going for, freedom for everyone.
1: and the team. Um, Hey everyone, my name is Raul. If we haven't met before, I uh, work here at Bread and I oversee the outreach initiatives with some of the greatest people I call the STC team. If you're on the STC team, can you raise your hand in the air so people know who you are? Let's give it up for them. They are incredible. Um, This week we are Continuing our series on the book of Romans, this is known as Paul's best work. This letter was delivered to the church in Rome by Phoebe, one of Paul's ministry partners. She would have arrived with this letter, read it aloud to the church, and likely have expanded on it. So as we hear these words in Romans, we remember that these were first spoken aloud by a woman, by a theologian, a leader, and a preacher. And in the 16th century, the words from Romans helped spark the reformation of the church in Europe. Local church leaders and members protested the status quo, and they helped people live their Christian lives free from fear and free from debt. The reformation resulted in the creation of the Protestant tradition, distinct from the Catholic tradition. And so you can thank Luther and the other reformers for the break that we take after our worship. That was their idea. Uh, But Romans is a profound letter about the life that Jesus offers. His death and resurrection mean that a new reality is here. Romans is surprising, challenging, compelling, and it is it entails the complete work of God, hence the name of our series, but what we're doing in this series is really we're scratching the surface. We're covering the book in broad strokes. Last week, Ed talked about grace, the solution to our human condition, and today, excitingly, is about the gift of the Spirit. Specifically, how the gift of the Spirit means that change is possible for you and me. Isn't that good news? The gift of the Spirit means that transformation is not impossible. And what Paul is declaring in Romans 8 is that the Spirit enables us to live the good life. And so let's hear Romans 8 from Carol. Let's give it up for Carol. the mic for you. Okay,
0: great. (laughs) Romans 8, 1 through 16. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even through your body is subject to death because of sin. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory.
1: Amen. Thanks, Carol. That is a dense chunk of scripture. The founders uh, of the church in Rome were primarily Jewish. The message of Jesus reached the heart of the empire, and naturally it took root amongst the Jewish population. And as this was happening, the Roman emperor Claudius kicked out the Jewish community from Rome. But after his death, they were allowed to return when a new emperor came into power. And many Romans were sad to see them return. And the sentiment existed even within the church there. The Gentile Christians had the church to themselves. So it was their culture, their expression of faith, all of this was the norm. And it all reflected the dominant culture. And so when the Jewish Christians returned, they came back to a church that did it that they did not recognize. And if you've ever left your childhood home and have returned to see your room become an office or a guest room, then you likely know that feeling. My old room at my parents' house became the miscellaneous storage room. There's a flat-screen TV on the ground next to a Costco seaweed, next to a car battery. It is so bizarre. And looking at it, I'm like, was this ever my room? But similarly, the Jewish Christians returned to a church that they did not recognize. And so the two groups clashed with one another. The Jewish Christians argued that the non-Jewish Christians needed to keep their laws and customs to be real, righteous Christians. And the others thought that the Jewish law had become irrelevant and they wanted to throw it out. And so naturally, this raises a question, who was right, and who needed to change. And it's the question of our day, isn't it? I find that we tend to name ourselves as the right ones, don't we? When it comes to recalling conflict with your partner, disagreement in the workplace, or among family and friends, we can be quick to say we're right and slow to admit that actually we may need to change. We often take the path of least resistance, which says, I'm right and you need to fit my idea of rightness. It often brings division, it can lead to pain, it demonizes opposing groups and elevates one's own. It grows our ego and ultimately it distracts us from who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing. And this is what the church in Rome was facing. To the Jewish Christians, They claimed their rightness by holding on to the law, and the law referred to the first five books of the Bible. It is the Torah, it is the uh, instruction, and this served as a foundation for a life with God. It contained the story of God and their own. It revealed who God is, who they were, what they were supposed to be, and how they were supposed to live in light of God's promises by following 613 laws. This was core to their identity and their practice. And Paul admits the law is good. It points to the God-centered life, but because of our self-centeredness, we couldn't get there. The law shows us the kind of life we're supposed to live, one in harmony with God and others, but our human susceptibility to sin, or as Ed said it last week, our human propensity to F things up meant that we couldn't get there. The goal, the vision that the law set out for us is good, but it couldn't be reached. And so Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, guys, I am the fulfillment of the law. In other words, he does what you and I couldn't do for ourselves. He lives the perfect life. He makes a way for us to live the life that we're made for, not by obeying the law, but by beholding Jesus. What we couldn't do for ourselves, God did for us. And this is the core truth that Paul is raising in Romans. He said to the Jewish Christians, the law is insufficient to bring change, incapable of producing the kind of life that you long for. The 613 commands couldn't resolve the issues of the heart. Again and again, people failed to live up to the law. It wasn't enough to bring about the change that we truly needed, an inward change, a change of the heart. And what Paul is saying to the other group, to the Gentile Christians, is guys, don't think you're any better. They're coming into the family of God apart from the law doesn't mean that they're better off. They had their own issues to work out. It was common Roman practice to have household gods and spirits that brought good luck, and Paul is saying, guys, these lesser spirits aren't doing the thing that you need. They're not resolving issues of the heart. And so like with the Jewish Christians, the kind of inward change needed requires one from an outside source. What is needed is a change of heart. So in their rightness, in their aim to paint the opposing group wrong and their own group right in their attempt to justify themselves and preserve their own ways and avoid change, Paul's argument is this. Guys, you have missed the point. Jesus is the only right one. Jesus is the only righteous one. His righteousness outshines our best efforts. He eclipses every sense of rightness that we may have. His righteousness is incomparable. Nothing compares to the perfection of Jesus, and this is what he shares with us. Jesus's righteousness is applied to you and me. And there are two camps of people here. Those who have a difficulty realizing our right standing with God, and those who have an over-realization, or those who have a modified realization, Those who have a difficulty realizing it, it often takes a form of self-loathing, self-denial, maybe even self-hatred. They can imagine themselves as the worst of the worst and deserving of punishment for their imperfection. They are the people that often feel too dirty to come into church, too gross to participate, and they can often feel that they are repulsive. And those who have an over-realization, a modified realization, often have a hard time seeing their own faults. It can be easy for them to judge others. They imagine imagine others as dirty and they fear being contaminated. There are those who fear letting God down. They can fear being abandoned and punished for not being good enough. And the message received between these two groups is the same, that God is a God of merit, and righteousness must be earned by your good deeds. And if you grew up with this, please just leave it aside. This has more to do with pagan thought that seeks to appease an angry God, and God is not angry. Instead, Jesus, the living God, offers his righteousness for free. And Paul is saying, you Christians, you Jews and non-Jews alike, are both righteous. And he says, now live into that righteousness. Live as a righteous people that you are. This is a message they would have received, and it is a message to us. So, the question, so if the question is, who is right and who needs to change? Paul says to the Romans, Jesus is right and you need to change. Jesus is right, and we need to change. And change is what the Spirit comes to do. And I'll be honest, I don't really like change. I say that I do, but I don't. And do you know how I know that I don't? Because every time I get coffee, I get the same thing. Black coffee. Every, there's a Thai restaurant just around the corner from our office, and we often, as a staff, will go to lunch there, and every time we go to lunch at this Thai restaurant, I get the same thing, Patsy You, I've gotten it for 20 years. <laughs> and every time I go to Highland Park Wine, I go to the same table, grab the same bottle of wine with the exact same label. And so I say I like change, but it's often really hard. But this is what the Spirit does as he brings about the good kind of change, the change that you'll be glad that you have, the good change involves righteousness. And it's the spirit that makes righteousness possible. He is the essential element of the whole Christian life. He is like the air that we breathe. We're energized to live as righteous people that we are. And righteousness deals with relationships. And the idea of righteousness or justification isn't just some disembodied abstract theological concept that people in ivory towers talk about for hours and hours. Justification has to deal, is justification is about how we share the table. It's about how we relate with one another. It is about how we relate to God. It is about how we share the table. And what I see informing Paul's take on righteousness and justification is his own conversion and journey. And so let's have a look at Paul's origin story. Before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And so let's go back from Romans, rewind to Acts 7. Acts 7 records the killing of Stephen, the first martyr. And Following this scene, we read this. Saul, Paul, who wrote Romans, Saul approved of their killing him. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It's pretty intense. This is the Saul that we, that we speak of so often, the Paul that we speak of so often. This is who he was, this was his history, his background. And then when Saul became a Christian, other Christians had to wrestle with that history. They had to ask, are we going to welcome him in? Guys, we've heard about what he's doing. We've seen the things that he's done. Yeah, my uncle, he put him in prison. Like, these are the things that Paul has done. Are we going to share the table with Paul? And Acts 9 contains the church's protest. They're protesting to God, and they're protesting amongst themselves. One guy named Ananias says this. He's protesting to God. He says, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people. And shortly afterwards, we read, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Isn't that a very sad statement? He tried to join the disciples. He tried to join the disciples, but they wouldn't let him in. He tried again and again, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. And this is the bit that gets me. But Barnabas took him in and it leads us to ask who are the souls trying to come in but have been turned away because we as a church have been too afraid we need spirit-filled people like Barnabas. It took spirit-filled people to welcome Saul to the table, to consider him righteous. The spirit enables us to do what Barnabas did, to cross lines of fear and division. And all of this, I imagine, is plain in Paul's mind as he's penning these words to these two groups of people that couldn't get along The Spirit empowers us to live ethically and right standing with God and with one another. It isn't just individualistic. This isn't, Christianity isn't just about us being on our own island, trying to figure it out on our own. The Spirit invites us into community around the table. That's what righteousness is about. And in the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, we see something about ourselves. What we see in the first group is that we can have the most religious background, maybe i have grown up with knowing the scriptures front to back. We can be well-disciplined and well-ordered, but still look down on those who are racially and culturally different than us. And in the Gentiles, what we see is how Christians formed by the dominant culture can continue to marginalize those that are different. We can be as relevant and attuned to the norms of L.A. culture, and if we're not aware, still push to the fringes those that come from different backgrounds and those that hold different perspectives. And so in both cases, the problem is the same. The problem Paul is calling out is a reluctance to share the table with Christians that are different than us. Instead, we're to give ourselves over to the Spirit. This is what it means to live righteously. We're one family made up of different people from different backgrounds and histories who, by cultural standards, we shouldn't be in the same room. And what the Spirit does is bring people together. The Spirit establishes unity, but it is up to us to maintain it. Yeah. If unity is a house, picture your dream house perched up on a hill with a, some goats and um, pigs and a barn. You get fresh eggs every morning. If this is the house, now you guys know what my dream is. <laughs> I want pigs and goats. great question. Actually, I don't know where the eggs are coming from. Maybe, maybe, maybe pigs that can make eggs. We'll see. It's my dream, so. But if this is the, if this is the vision, if this is the, the house that the Spirit, if unity is a house that the Spirit built, it is Him who furnished it. The Spirit fills its cabinets, stocked the essential goods with all the good things that we need, but it is up to us to maintain the house. There's an effort on our part. So can I say this with all love? Squash, clicks, resist homogeneity, and let's submit to the spirit. Amen. Amen. This spirit-enabled unity is actually an outward sign of an inner change. Unity is a sign that we're living by the Spirit. And Paul lays out two ways of being here. The way of the flesh and the way of the Spirit. And he says, of Christians, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Or in other words, if God's Spirit is at home in you. And if you've ever had somebody move in or stay the night, you know that it requires some rearranging. It would be unkind to leave uh, your underwear on the table when you have guests over. Clean underwear, because you just did laundry and you don't want to put it away, so you grab it all on a stack and you just throw it on the table and you say, I'll deal with it later. Um, You guys are just getting everything. This is... You guys know me now. But if you've ever had somebody move in or stay the night, you know that it requires some rearranging. It would be unkind to leave your place a mess. Instead, you do what you can to make it special, to make it worthy of their presence. And I want to shout out Kari here for a second. Is Kari here? Kari, are you here? Oh, hey Kari. Um, Kari started volunteering with an organization called Olive Crest. And they, their whole goal is to keep kids out of foster care. And one of the programs that they organize is uh, basically temporary relief for kids in um, certain situations. So for example, if a mother has a doctor's appointment or is going into surgery, she has no one else to leave their child with, they'll call somebody like Kari and say, hey, can." My, can I can I bring my kid to you and you have you watch them for the next couple days? And so one of the as um, part of the process in volunteering in this way is they have uh, organizers from Olive Crest come and review your house. They'll walk through your house and make sure that it is appropriate for the child that will be staying there. They'll make sure there's nothing that is dangerous. They'll make sure your knives are put away. They'll make sure um, that there is no, no, no bleach on the, in the, under the sink. Make sure nothing is accessible. And really, what Paul is telling the church to do is prepare. Allow the presence of the Spirit to be fully at home in you. And in verse 13, he states this. If by the Spirit you are putting into death the practices of the body, you will live. Notice how interchange is supposed to happen. It is by the Spirit. This is what sets Christianity apart from other faiths. That God has deposited his spirit in us and we participate with him in making our bodies, our communities, his home. And so when Pastor Paul says, and the reason I say Pastor Paul is he's, he's, he's responding to a pastoral issue in the church. So when Pastor Paul says, Jesus is right and you need to change, his answer for how we change is by the spirit the Spirit energizes us to change. He brings inner transformation. And again, I think of this conversation, this this history that Paul um, may have in mind, how did Paul change so drastically? How did this change happen so suddenly? It was by the Spirit. And the same goes for us. And there are moments of immediate change and there are moments of slow change. And so in the immediate change, let us be thankful, not setting ourselves as the standard to hold others up to, but instead allowing Jesus to be the standard. And in the slow change, let us be patient with ourselves, not giving up hope and returning to Jesus, whose grace never fails. And notice that this isn't something that just happens to us. We are not passive. This isn't like us showing up to a nail salon run by the Holy Spirit and and saying, I'm here to get a pedicure. We're not passive in this. The next part of verse 13 says, you are putting to death the practices of the body. And so what's the answer to change? How do we change? Is it all up to the Spirit? Is it all up to us? The answer is yes. It is fully us and fully the Spirit. And you can't live the Christian life on your own. You need the Spirit to fill you, to be flowing through you. One scholar puts it this way. He says, life in the Spirit is not passive, nor is it obedience automatic. The Spirit leads us in our transformation, and we participate in it with Him. He gives us the desires, the determination, and the discipline to live the good life. The Spirit transforms us to experience the new, rich, full life that we have in Jesus. And this is the good life that you and I are made for. It is a life of adoption. We've been adopted into God's family. And adoption in the Greco-Roman world is unlike modern-day adoption. Firstly, Roman adoption could take place at any age. You can be 50 and be adopted. Secondly, adoption cancels all previous debts and relationships. Adoption defined a new person, defined a person entirely. And so, what this image means, as Paul is using it, this image means that you are entirely new. That your old life, your old history, its debts, its regrets, its curses hold no power over you. You belong to your good father. And Paul is saying, I know you guys see yourselves as different people. Roman and Jewish, but actually, in Christ, you have the same Father. You are of the same family. Our adoption into God's family is by the Spirit. The Spirit reminds us that we're not orphans, that we're not independent, that we're not isolated. The Spirit returns us to our Heavenly Father. And if you've been far off, if you've been on your own, the Spirit brings you back and says, you are loved, you are a child of the living God, and nothing can separate us from, the, from his love. Paul ends this section with us. He says, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God really loves you. And this is what the Spirit reminds us of. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's a person, your friend. And we've covered just a sliver of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. And I want to end how we started. We started with singing this really dense, heavy theological song to the Spirit. And I want to end with a dense, heavy theological word about the Spirit. This comes from uh, the fourth century, written by a guy named Basil the Great. Don't know if he named himself that, or if that's what people called him. But if anybody wants to be the great, you just come up here and make it known. But he formed this this word in response to claims that the spirit was inferior, that the spirit was less than the father and the son. And so Basil, the G, the great, he states this, He says, through the Holy Spirit, and pay attention to the italicized words on the screen. He says, through the Spirit comes our restoration to paradise, our ascension to the kingdom of heaven, our return to adoption, our liberty to call God our Father, our being made partakers of the grace of Christ, our being called children of light, are sharing in eternal glory, and in a word, are being brought into a state of all fullness of blessing, both in this world and in the world to come. That is Basil the Great from On the Holy Spirit, written in the fourth century. And so in simple terms, what does all that mean? It means that the Spirit brings us the good life that we're after. That God shares it with us. He shares himself with us. And we're to share it with one another. That's funny. I love that. That's the Spirit saying, Amen. (laughs) This is the good life that the Spirit energizes us to live into. And so if I can have um, the band come up, we are going to... Sink the ship. I know people say land the plane, but I'm just trying it out. <laughs> does, does sink the ship work? You no. Know? <laughs> dock or dock the boat? Dock the boat. I feel like land the plane has been overused, and so we're just trying, trying, it, trying something new. Park the car. Oh gosh, this is fun. But to wrap up, in response to the Roman question, who is right and who needs to change? We hear Pastor Paul say, Jesus is right. Welcome the change that the Spirit wants to do because you've been brought into one family with one Father in heaven. And so as we sing, I wanna encourage us to welcome the spirit. Often we um, can pigeonhole the spirit to just the charismatic stuff, but the spirit is so much bigger. He is the one who creates new life. He is the one who sustains life. And I don't know how you arrived this morning, but if you're feeling a bit depleted, if you're feeling a bit dry, welcome the Spirit who breathes new life over you, who reminds you of your, um, of the life that God has called you into, who reminds you of the love that God has for you. And so as we sing, let us just in our own words welcome the Spirit. And then, as always, we will uh, pray for people at the front.